Hello everybody, my name is Derek Arden and welcome to yet another Monday Night Live. I'm delighted tonight to be talking to you about Red Team Thinking. In fact, I've got uh, one of the speakers, uh, one of the top speakers on Red Team Thinking with us today, Marcus Dimbleby. I'm absolutely delighted to be uh, introducing Marcus, who uh, was in the RAF, was a wing commander in the RAF, worked with the US Marine Corps, worked with the Royal Marines, and worked with the uh, with the Navy. So today we're going to learn all sorts of things about red team thinking, which is the modern leadership, the modern management, the modern way to look at some of the problems that we're faced in 2021. Uh, Marcus, uh, thanks so much for uh, joining us. And um, if you're there and uh, unmuted, uh, perhaps you tell us a little bit about your uh, amazing career. I am here indeed and appreciate you inviting me on, Derek. Really nice to be here and thank you for everyone else for taking time and effort to come across from all corners of the globe, it looks like. So, yeah, so my uh, my chequered past, as you may call it, I've got quite a varied career uh, trajectory from joining the Air Force when I was 18. Uh, my role as a fighter controller was pretty much sitting in bunkers in the East Coast, looking at radars in dark rooms, hoping the Russian would come over so we could scramble fighters and have some fun. And I thought, I can't do this for 25 years. It's going to, it's just going to, I'm pale enough as it is. I need to get outside and see something different. So I was always on the lookout for other opportunities and other roles that there were. And I managed to get a, a tour in Cyprus, in Sardinia. I turned down the, uh, the Dutch exchange because I told my posting officer he's going to send me to America the next year instead because I heard about this US Marine Corps role. So I ended up going out to the US Marine Corps in Arizona in 2000. Uh, the year before 9-11 kicked off. So I was out there for three and a half years, did a lot of work with the Marines, my first real exposure to red teaming and how they operate, looking at the adversarial threat. And obviously with 9-11 kicking off, we did all the planning for Iraq and then I deployed as a US Marine wearing a British uniform with a, a Union Jack flag strapped to my arm uh, out to Iraq with them, which is very interesting. And then came back from there, didn't go back into wearing light blue again, carried on working with the Royal Marines, then the Navy, then a joint tour, and then eventually ended up backing light blue doing one of the air defence, what's called a national representative role. So providing that 9-11 coverage support in the UK. So any aircraft that comes in, not squawking the right codes and modes and talking to people, we'd scramble fighters that were on 24-7. And that was in 2010. And it just happened that I was there as we started the run-up to the Olympics. So we were fortunate enough to do all the air defence planning for the security of the Olympic Games, which you may remember in the press where we had rockets on rooftops and the big ship up the, uh, at the Thames parked outside the O2 with helicopters and snipers on and the fighters brought down from the north to Norfolk, causing mayhem for all the airlines. So that was my career. And throughout all of that, from both the military perspective of understanding how you have what's called mission command, how do you enable the individual at the front line where the action's happening to make the decisions that the executive that the general would make if he was there. And how do you devolve that capability of decision-making and taking responsibility to the lowest possible level? And so terms like agile and scrum, we were doing those in the military back in the nineties. It was just a natural, how you make a team effective. And obviously the best way to do that is to be able to allow that team to challenge the hierarchy, to challenge command. And a lot of people think that the phrase command and control is a bad thing. I love it. I was a command and control officer as part of my background, but people couple them together. They think they're braced here, but if you break them apart, retain command where it needs to do, but push control to where it needs to be, 
that's how it becomes a real powerful capability rather than trying to get rid of it completely. And then from there, I left the military, went into the commercial world, worked in consultancy for a while, but my ethics made sure I didn't stay there for too long. Then went into independent, working in large-scale transformations, helping government and finance, became the head of Agile at Lloyd's Banking Group, ruled out their own internal process there for new ways of working. And then I eventually got introduced to this gentleman called Bryce Hoffman, who's the author of Red Teaming. And he was the only civilian, and is now because the schoolhouse is closing down, to have gone through the US Army's Red Teaming University at Fort Leavenworth. And he'd wrote a book previously called American Icon, which, which was following Alan Mulally through the Ford history as the CEO. Having saved Boeing post 9-11, Alan Mulally got brought into Ford as the only non-Ford guy to take over as CEO. So Bryce was a reporter at the time. He said, can I write the story? So he followed Alan Mulally through that. And at the end of it, he said to Bill Ford, he said, you must be so excited now. Ford's top of the game again. And he's like, Bryce, I'm not. I don't sleep still because Ford are notorious for going down the roller coaster, down the other side. In the last century, we've been up, we've been down, we've been up. And I don't know how we stopped that. So Bryce went away and started thinking and discovered this thing called red teaming. And he started to work out where it was, who was doing it. So he got in touch with the Israelis, having seen the movie World War Z, where they save themselves with the 10th man concept, where they challenge everything that's going on by the 10th man in the room. And then with that, he came back to find out the US had this schoolhouse who so went through the school training program. And from there, he looked at how he rolls out red teaming into business to take the concepts of critical challenge against what the plans are, against what strategies are, rather than, as we often see, just going along with it because the executive have released the big program, the big grand plan. And from that, I then met him at a conference. I wasn't able to work with him at the time. I had another gig in a bank come off. And then a year later, I'd finished at the bank. He was in the UK and we met, got together, and then just decided to form a partnership and take what the evolution of red teaming into was what red team thinking is today, which I'm sure we'll be discussing more about. And that's where I am. I've been doing that with Bryce for the last two years now. Fantastic. Well, let's uh, let's uh, roll the tape back a little bit and uh, talk about what you did. There's uh, two or three things I'm really interested in. What about the different cultures uh, being a US Marine wearing a UK um, UK uniform. How did that work? Yeah, you've got to watch what you say. Put it that yeah, way. Yeah, no, I was going to say, we are being recorded, so be careful. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, uh, it's like even working with the Navy, you know, they've got what's called Jack speak. So it's words that they use and what are very different to other people. So first fitting in with the individuals from a language perspective and a nation difference is something you have to quickly get on board with. Uh, how you speak so I have to say bottle instead of bottle because that just amused them and they never understood what I was saying and route instead of root and many other things but from a cultural perspective I think the US Marine Corps was one of the most highly aligned to the way the British military operate as well so you know they've got a very much can-do attitude a very much joint perspective of you know within the Marine Corps they have Air Force, Army, Navy, Special Forces capability built within so they're very much about jointry it's not just about the Marine on the ground. So I learned a lot from what I'd done previously as a fighter controller, bringing assets together to then doing that on a much larger scale with, you know, troops on the ground to aviation, to helicopters, to ships at sea. And obviously the command chain that sees that over from a command and control perspective. And I thought the, the national alignment that we had with the US going into the Gulf and the planning was one of the strengths, without a doubt. And that's why, obviously, they're our, they're our number one ally, you know, common language. 
uh, separated by the ocean. But other than that, I think it's a really unique opportunity. And I was very privileged. And the, the unit I was at was Mort's One, which is their schoolhouse for marine aviation, weapons and tactics. So they sent all of their best, best people to be instructors. There, there was 110 on the Carter. So I was working with the, you know, the top 5% of all the Marines over there. So that was really a real challenge for me. I had to make sure I up my game and, you know, fit it in and kept it high throughout because, you know, the bar was so high that, you know, nothing less than the best was acceptable when we're going into combat and people's lives are at stake. So that was a very much a, a steep learning curve and I've, and I've enjoyed and thrived on that and try to keep that level as I've come back and brought that back with me to the UK. Absolutely. Uh, fantastic. And that's why I immediately, when I left uh, Barclays, went to the States to study at Harvard and also joined the Speaking Association over there. And uh, uh, and that's why a couple of my friends are on this call now from what I've learned. So, yeah, the energy, the positivity, etc. Yeah. is fantastic. I asked you the question about the culture, because uh, sometimes we use words that to my American friends just don't understand. Absolutely. And uh, sitting in a conference in America, um, you had 2,000 Americans laughing at a joke, and I didn't understand the joke at all. I was just sitting there uh, totally bemused by the, the whole yep. thing. Um, let's go back to um, scrambling fighters. That sounds mm -hmm. a risky sort of red team thinking job when you see a blip on the radar. Um, how, do you, uh, how do you get your head around that? Yeah, absolutely. That, that is talking about you know spinning many plates at the same time and managing all these we used to call it you know, 3D airborne chess is what you're trying to play with all these things and that's what's fascinating about the Olympics was when we first went down to cabinet it was like great you guys do the 9-11 prevention you can stop any airliners flying in that's not a problem that's that problem solved and we're like okay you've not really considered the threat aspect here have you the least likely thing to happen is an airliner is going to fly into a stadium you know what about microlights what about drones what about parasailers what about small aircraft from the 140 air airfields that sit within the M25. And by the way, we can't get the fighters down from what was Conningsby and Lucas at the time in Scotland to where you need them to be quick enough. So we're going to have to relocate those into London sector. All of these considerations that hadn't been thought about because everyone just thought you can just scramble a fighter and they'll get there like Thunderbird 2 will arrive on time, you know, <laughs> with the, the hyperspace rockets. So it really was a good eye-opening exercise for everybody from the Royal Air Force's perspective to see the complexity of the challenge for the cabinet, to see the threats that are posed against a national event and what the, you know, what the terrorist aspect could be. And then adapting. And that's the key thing with this in everything in business today. As Darwin said, you know, it's not those who are smartest, fastest, it's those who can adapt to change. And in this volatile complex world we're working today, you have to be adaptable and resilient. And if you don't, you know, you're going to be left by the wayside or pretty much defunct in no time. So it's having that capability to see what's different, see what's required, and then being able to respond often on the fly and react, you know, as required or do that detailed planning that allows you the optionality to respond because what you planned are multiple things that may happen. So you're aware, you're seeing the triggers that are coming towards you. So it's not something that hits you in the face. You're seeing the indicators happening and the red light comes on, the green light comes on, then you know it's going to happen next. So you can plan to avoid and take that into account. And did you have to present directly to the Prime Minister and, and the Cabinet on, on yeah. your views? Yeah, how it works is there are, it's the Prime Minister plus five, or it was at the time, where five of them are on a roster. And whoever, you have a big red phone on your desk and you pick it up and within two minutes, one of those will answer that phone ready to 
you know, give the executives orders and support you with what you're doing. So yeah, we, we had the full George Robertson, uh, Cameron. I spent the night with Theresa May in the bunker. She came to visit for the uh, closing ceremony of the Olympics. So she spent the night. So again, because instead of this perspective of when you call them, they're on a the phone. I'm sat there with my multi Star Trek Enterprise operations room and the poor individual who's got to make that executive call is listening to you on the phone. And as Theresa May likened it, she said, it's like looking down a straw. All I'm seeing is this tiny speck and hearing what you're seeing and trying to convey. So you've got to convey that message in very clearly and succinctly and help them understand. So obviously for the closing and then opening Olympic ceremony, they physically came and spent the night in the bunker with us, which was fascinating to see and good to give them the opportunity to see what we saw as well, help their understanding. Wow. And the bunker, presumably, you don't need to tell me where the bunker is. That might still be top secret, but the bunker presumably wasn't in Stratford. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that's the that's enough on that but so yeah. again i mean do we uh, do we still get buzzed by uh yeah russia yeah, see in the paper yeah the russians always coming over now i mean when i when i joined in the late 80s 90s these things were coming over on a daily basis and there was a hiatus throughout and it went quiet and then what was fascinating when they started coming again was seeing these big bear bombers that we'd intercepted in the late 80s 90s coming back in 2012 absolutely pristine so they basically had like a 15 to 20 year paint full reservice full paint job and these came back looking like these beautiful ancient vintage aircraft but just fully specced up and it's the same tail numbers that we didn't intercepted back in the 90s so yeah and they're, they're coming over and you'll see in the press they're all often coming over and then obviously airline aircraft incidents now that you see in the press are normally a drunken member or comms fail you know hopefully we don't see any major terrorist incidents of any concern anymore thankfully mm, wow Touch wood. so what's the major difference you've seen between um the forces and big business you said um well i got out of uh, i got out of uh, commercial banking i don't know if it's commercial banking you said but you got out of that mm -hmm. working full time which is what i got out of as well and one or two yeah. of the people on here um and uh set your own business up what were the major differences there I think the difference from the military, the military, everyone has a single focus. Even if you've got your own different missions, you know, the single focus is, you know, preserve life, have a single focus mission, protect those either side of you, where you're going to big business, even if there's one sole vision or strategy, you know, everybody's working in their own individual areas, stovepipes of excellence, I call it, where, you know, they've got their own agendas, their own P&Ls, and they're focused on their thing, whatever that may be. And trying to get this cross-community collaboration, this transparency of what's going on is one of the biggest blockers I've found. And where, where you enable that in an organization, you start to see real dividends and you know bonuses of ways of working from that. But I think for me, and again, especially in banking, that's one of the most legacy organizations that are out there and trying to, trying to get a big high street bank to shift its mindset to the likes of what Monzo and Starling and even Metro Bank are doing is, is a hurdle. You know, and they're, they're trying but it's having to move those, those anchors that have been attached to it over 250 years to get them in the right direction. It's difficult, and that, that takes a mindset shift that is not going to happen overnight, but it often needs that strong leadership to make that happen and force it, push it, lead it, be advocates of it through. And I think that's where many organisations today, you know, if you look in the Business Agility Institute report, you know, the last three years, every year, the number one challenge to enabling business agility and change has been leadership so all the new stuff's changing the technology 
the robots, the chatbots, the AI, the machine learning, the process is all evolving into the 21st century, but we're still stuck with this 20th century way of thinking that hasn't evolved to keep up with what's going on, which is why we, we do what we do. A quick one on that. I was just wondering, but is that because the big banks lend big money, whereas Monzo and Starling don't really lend money at all? You know, they're yeah. just the uh, cash management machine. No, I don't think the bank's just one example. I, I think I've worked with many legacy organizations. I think it's the size of the, the business, the issue that is the problem. I think the bigger these things are, the longer they've been going. And someone just said it's like architecture, you know, in a business. Instead of, and this is why it's so difficult for them to move into smaller hybrid cloud structures because the architecture they have has been just bolted on. You know, every five years you stick a bit on and nobody can give you the blueprint where everything's working now because it's just been added on, added on, added on. And then to take that away and replace it with things is difficult. And that's almost akin to the structure of the organization, how it's set up, its internal behaviors, its thought processes, its mentality, its institutionalized behaviors that you see, shifting those is almost a Sisyphean act sometimes and it, and it takes strong leadership and even, even the market shifting and the threat of these challenges and the threat of other things out there often don't make people wake up quick enough and soon enough. And if anything good comes of COVID, you would hope that the last 18 months has shown people that this volatility of operations, whether you're running a cafe, a bar, a big conglomerate, an airline, these things can happen overnight and shift quickly. So are you capable of adapting and resilient enough to bounce back and recover when you get punched in the face? You know, as Mike, plan, as Mike Tyson says, you know, everyone's got a great plan until you get punched in the face. Then what do you do? You know, how do you get back up and keep fighting and surviving? Sure. The last 18 months have been a great example of that. And no one ever thought of that. Just um, just 9-11. But, but uh, just finishing on banking, it's interesting that JP Morgan Chase are just launching a, a digital bank in the UK. So they must think there's some uh, some things that they can sweep up uh, Sweep Absolutely. up here and make a lot of money on as they're the biggest bank in the uh, biggest yes. bank in the world. Yeah. The well, final yeah. thing I want to ask you on uh, session number one um, before we uh, before we close is um, is about politicians. Um, you know, everybody in the UK tends to criticise the politicians. They get a lot of stick. Um, I think they're doing a good job on certain things. There must be a huge amount of things going on behind the scenes. Uh, they've got to be quick thinking. They've got to be on their feet. It's a huge responsibility. Is there anything you can add to that from your your um, from your experience? Yeah, I, I think it's beyond the wit of a politician to deal with what we're dealing with now. And I think it's beyond the wit of any individual group. I think boards are no longer capable. I think generals and leaders of the military are no longer capable. And I think politicians as a group are no longer capable. And I don't say that to say that they're not fit for purpose as individuals. I, I say that because there's a great quote from Ian Conn, who in 2018, he was the CEO of Centrica, British Gas. And at the time he stood up and it was a big convention. He said, it's moving too fast. He said, it's revolution, not evolution. And there's so many accelerations going on at once that the biggest problem right now for mankind, whether you're a political leader, a military leader, a business leader, is the difficulty to cope with it. And that sort of recognition is that that super CEO, that super board can deal with all this like they used to do in the 80s, is dead. It's gone. It's physically impossible to deal with what we're seeing in this VUCA environment, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguous world we're working in to deal with it. So any politician who stands up and thinks he can make a decision with a bit of advice from a scientist or, you know, his sidekick is a fool. 
you have to source the wisdom of the crowd and what's frustrating and what you see is a lack of engagement in organizations because the answers lie within and we jokingly call ourselves unconsultants we, we will never come to an organization and give them the answers we vehemently tell you i don't have any answers for you but what i do is i have the tools and techniques that enable you to surface them because they all lie within your organization don't bring mckinsey or deloitte in because they'll tell you what you want to hear they'll give you any answer you want to hear and your people already know the answers. They get frustrated when they see that. So if you're a politician, you've got 100,000 civil servants working for you. The answers lie within. And if you don't take the time, and it doesn't take a lot of time to do that, to canvas their opinions, to get their ideas, to surface what the most junior intern has to think versus the most senior salt who's been there for centuries, everybody and all in between, that's what I call true diversity of thought. And if you're not capitalizing on that and exercising that extraction, you're a fool because nobody can do this anymore, physically proven. And, and I think it goes back to Spider-Man days and Uncle Benya, with great power comes great responsibility. And that responsibility doesn't mean you have to have all the answers. And this is where executives today often struggle with imposter syndrome, with the perspective that I need to have all the answers. I'm the C-suite. I must be all-powering, all-knowing. Rather than taking a more humble approach, you go, hey, my great people, I have no idea what we're doing here. This is a problem I've never seen before. But you know what? I know if we work together and we all come together and work and understand the problem we're facing together, you can all surface some of the great ideas that are out there because we're all here. We just don't have a mechanism to do that because we're all moving too fast or, or I perceive I don't need that support as a politician, leader, etc. And I think that goes back to the issue with leadership. I don't, I don't think leadership has evolved to be understood what it needs to be. Leadership to me now is like culture. It's not a titled role that goes with an individual. It's a capability that should be fostered in school, let alone in business. It should start in school and kids should leave school and go into wherever they're going into university work on a leadership path, understanding what leadership is paired with followership. And you should be taught the aspects of both. So as you evolve up, you don't get that Peter principle concept of some poor manager who's awesome at his job, suddenly gets stuck in managing all teams and leading them, then fails rapidly. And everyone tells him he sucks. He's, a, he's a, an appalling leader. Sure. Who, who helped him get there? And that's the thing. None of these people are bad people. No one gets out of bed to do a bad job. They've just been overloaded, as Ian Conn said, in a position that you can't deal with anymore. And if you're not being taught how to ask for help, which is why I think the military is always really good and has been for centuries of, you know, look to the team. I think that's where we're at today. Fantastic. We're just coming to the end of session one. One last question in 60 seconds. It's going to be impossible for you to answer, but when you get a board together or when you get the lower management together who somehow got to teach the board, um, what do you do with them and how long does it take to get them thinking uh, in red team thinking or VUCA, etc.? Our quickest, we've got a 90 minute overview session, which basically opens their eyes, turns the world upside down and makes them realise that everything they thought isn't. Uh, just by using it again no shock tactics it's just by educating them on what's going on around the world that often they're not aware of and then using the tools to allow them to surface the issues that they know lie within but none of them dare speak about it and if they can do that and safe, even with an executive group they have psychological safety issues so if you can enable that through the tools we have and then you almost take the lid off and they'll look in and go oh yeah we all knew that was in there but nobody dare speak about it well if we don't what's going to happen if we ignore it and then we start to have proper conversations and people can start to be more open and understand what they need to do. 
that's a big job, Marcus, and congratulations on what you're doing. It uh, sounds absolutely uh, fantastic. And I know Nigel Kirby is, uh, has booked on one of your courses already. If uh, anybody uh, wants any more information about Marcus and his work, how do they find you, Marcus? Uh, redteamthinking.com. Brilliant. And uh, if you've enjoyed this session, which has been absolutely fascinating, please join us on session two, which will be on YouTube and on the Negotiators podcast under my name. Thanks, Marcus. That's been fantastic. No problem. Pleasure.